welcome to the Financial Planning for Canadian Business Owners podcast. You will hear about industry insights with award-winning financial planner and entrepreneur, Jason Pereira. Through the interviews with different experts with their stories and advice, you will learn how you can navigate the challenges of being an entrepreneur, plan for success, and make the most of your business and life. And now, your host, Jason Pereira. Hello and welcome. Today on the show, I have Brian Portnoy, founder of Shaping Wealth and author of three books, including the must-read advisor book, The Geometry of Wealth. Brian is a well-known expert in the field of behavioral finance, and I brought him on the show today specifically to talk about what behavioral finance is and how it affects our decision-making and our relationships with the people advising us. And with that, here's my interview with Brian. Brian, thank you so much for taking the time. Good to be here. So, uh, Brian Portnoy, tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. I am a husband to Tracy. I'm a father to Ben, Zach, and Sarah. I guess I could throw my dog, Freddie, in the mix. I consider myself his dad as well. We live in the city of Chicago, about a mile west of Wrigley Field. And I've spent the last 25 years or so in the financial services industry at the start on the investment side of things investment selection, fund analysis, portfolio construction, mostly in the hedge fund industry. So evaluating complex investments, but then about 10, 12 years ago, became fascinated by behavioral science, specifically behavioral finance, i.e. the psychology of money, and have gone on to publish three books in that space. And the main book that uh, you've referenced, The Geometry of Wealth, is the impetus for a company that I started a couple years ago called Shaping Wealth, which is a coaching and content platform uh, training financial advisors in the psychology of financial planning. I mentioned Shaping Wealth just because it is, I think, probably like the, the best of them, although I have read, I'm still one book behind. I got to get back to, I still got to get that last one from you. One quick observation about your your description of yourself, which I do love, is the fact that you went family community job. You're, you're a man who's got his priority stack set up. I will, I will tell you that much. That, that, that was very indicative of, I think, the, the conscious thinking you do around your life. So, all right, let's talk about the topic at hand, and that is behavioral science and behavioral finance. Can you explain to the layperson what these what this arena is? Sure. And there's a lot of jargon that is, to some extent, inescapable. That's just the nature of things. But when we talk about behavioral finance, let, let's just anchor on, on that term. And I mentioned in a quick breath a moment ago that we can also refer to it as the psychology of money. Behavioral finance is basically a science and a discipline that sits at the intersection of economics and psychology. The very short background is that there were two Israeli psychologists in the 1970s who were interested in human decision-making, and they looked at the American economics profession, and they said, those guys don't know what the hell they're talking about when it comes to how people actually operate in the world. Uh, those guys were named Danny Kahneman and Amos Tversky, and they did a lot of the pioneering work in so-called behavioral finance. The gentleman who sort of bridged the gap from those two from those two guys into America was a, a University of Chicago professor named Richard Thaler. All of these people at some point went on to win a Nobel Prize in the economic sciences focused on behavioral finance. And basically it boils down to how do human beings make decisions about money for better or for worse? And as opposed to 
a very traditional economic model of the way people work in terms of maximizing utility and having full information and a lot of other assumptions that economists make about the way people work. Behavioral finance embraces the messiness of who we are. Uh, some people embrace more messiness than others, but basically says, hey, we're, we're not necessarily rational human beings. Uh, we show up at the table with a whole set of biases and perspectives and our brains work in really quirky ways because our brains evolve not to make good money decisions, but to survive and then yeah. to some extent to thrive. And so here we are. So lots to unpack there. I would say um, for anyone who wants to familiarize themselves with the journey of the, the foundation of this, Michael Lewis's book, The Undoing Project, which is specifically about the partnership of uh, Kahneman Tversky, has been a great read. Uh, both, And of course, there's been books and papers published by them. And of course, also by Richard Thaler, all fantastic. Now, before we get to dive a little deeper into this, I want to contrast what you just said to or expand upon the, the definition of tra traditional finance. And traditional finance goes back to I would say the Victorian era, if not a little bit before then. And you, you think about where the concepts and structures of what exists there, there was, a, to me, there was always a very classist view to this, right? It was like the, de the description was the rational economic man. So first off, no surprise that the, you know, the classist would say like, no, 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 of course, the well-educated, a wealthy met to do or about man, we make rational decisions when in reality, like we're, like you said, we're messy creatures, right? So traditional finance, which worries about making the math work, which is great. Mm. doesn't always jive with people's gray matter and emotions. So, okay. So let's talk about basically what are the, some of the key learnings around that concept? Like, again, how does, how is it that human beings, I mean, we know we can be emotional. How is it that human beings basically do not optimize for utility as traditional finances tell us? Yeah. You know, one of the key assumptions in traditional economics is that more is better. Mm. And just from an empirical point of view, that's not the way that we are wired. I mean, it's not that economists don't understand, I'll use some jargon, diminishing marginal utility. Yes, they, they understand that perfectly well. But when it comes to making personal financial decisions, we're often trying to answer the question, how much is enough versus how do I get more? And enough tends to be uh, built around a story that you tell around your life, not in some loosey-goosey weird way, but we really are storytellers before we are, we are calculators. And so traditional economics really doesn't have a lot to say about the way many of us make sort of regular you know, economic or, or financial decisions in, in our day-to-day -day life. Stepping back, I mean, there's, there's a lot of different ways that we could go here. First of all, we have to appreciate kind of how we got here mm -hmm. and, you know, through the lens of our evolutionary chain and, and evolutionary psychology, the human brain in its very first function is, is here to just help us survive. Like it helps us, it regulates the body. Like the brain is not for thinking. We, we think of ourselves as kind of thoughtful, critical, critical thinkers. But the fact is that the main elements of the brain are designed or evolved to basically regulate all of the different biological or physical systems inside of us. And it's only on top of that, after that's been solved for, that, that we can then move on to the, the decision-making part. But the kind of residue of that prioritization is that what I call the evolutionary two-step is that we are built to survive and then thrive. 
So, so much of the way we approach the world and within that make financial decisions, it's, it's really about answering the question, am I going to be okay? How do I stay safe? And that has nothing to do with this concept of rationality or irrationality. In fact, at, at, at Shaping Wealth, we sort of have a, a loose rule that we are not allowed to use the words rational or irrational. We, we just talk about the word normal. Like, what does it mean to be a normal human being? And if you want to make it sound fancier, you can talk about it as being adaptive. And so when you give somebody in this survive and thrive mode more, it doesn't necessarily produce great things. So for example, there's something known as the paradox of choice. This is that when you give somebody, hey, I want more things in life. I want liberty. I want freedom. I want, I want to go to a big box store and have a thousand different things on the shelves that I, can, that I can choose. That sounds pretty good. Well, we know from modern psychological studies that when you give people too much, they get overwhelmed, they get stressed, they get anxious. And that's known as, as the paradox of choice, which you know, has, I think, pretty profound implications for how we go about not only navigating life generally, but making financial decisions. So there's a whole stack of evolutionary remnants that are built inside of us that really do not map to this traditional economic man model that you also made reference to. And so you know, a lot of what we're doing um, at our company, the way we see f- good financial planners enter their practices day to day is dealing with people as who they are, as opposed to who an economics textbook said they should be. Excellent. I mean, again, last time back there, it's the, uh, what's the saying? Nothing's irrational once you understand the journey someone's went through, gone through. Right? It all seems irrational to us subjectively, but now when you actually look at them objectively, and it's the paradox of choice brings up an interesting guest from a previous episode. And it was a friend of mine in marketing who said, the Coke remix machines is an example, right? You can come up with any number of combinations. I don't even know what the number is, but it's, it's, in, the, it's in the hundreds of thousands of combinations. And something like 65 or 66% of all selections on the Coke remix machine is straight Coke. That's mm. it. <laughs> right? So we have this world of selection that basically we think we want more, but at the end of the day, it can be overwhelming. And, and most often than not, we just want what we're used to. It's not surprising. Okay. So the let's go back to the um, how our brain kind of derails, quote unquote, optimal in many cases. I mean, you mentioned how we're not wired for that. I mean, it's one of, one of these fascinating things in, in the reading on behavioral finance I've, I've learned about over the years is the just how neuro, much neurochemistry and just energy affects the way we think. Like, for example, if you're thinking about something that you already know, or the more you do something, the less energy your brain expends in order to actually do that thing as opposed to new learnings. So you're actually more, you're actually using more resources mentally to learn something new than you are something old. And it's, it, and it basically led to, and one of the things I think that book told me is that the, end of the brain is wired for scarcity, scarcity of energy, scarcity of resources. And it's not surprising that we oftentimes reach for too much without actually understanding how much is enough. So care to speak to maybe like how behavioral finance overlays into that and basically makes us kind of understand where enough is. Yeah. So let me, we'll come sort of around the bend to enough in in, in a minute, but you touched on something really important, which is that the the brain is a gas guzzler. I don't know if uh, if that's an American phrase or if that lands in Canada also, but it soaks up a ton of energy. So our brains are roughly two and a half percent of our body weight and use about 25% of our caloric load. So it's sort of a 10x, you know, 10x proportion there. And you're absolutely correct to say that it doesn't want to work that hard. Um, calling it lazy or something like that is not, not the point. 
the point is that because we are constantly trying to be efficient in the way that we use energy, it produces certain outcomes, especially in the context of our decision making, that are quite quite consequential. So we we have something in our lives known as confirmation bias, which is that we seek out information that confirms our prior beliefs. So, you know, you you have a view as to the way the stock market works or whether one political party is better than the other or your favorite sports star is getting better or worse in his or her career or anything from the from the, you know or, or or what you think about a particular family member the brain tends to seek out information that merely aligns to what we were thinking before which is why when someone confronts you with a fact pattern that doesn't square with what you think, not only do you sort of intellectually like sort of wrestle with that, it can be even physically uncomfortable. And that confirmation bias is sort of part of a suite of different sort of biases that we have. And I'm not a huge fan of the word bias, but it's popular in the behavioral finance literature. So we'll, we'll use that for now. But we tend to, from an information gathering point of view, and the information producing one decision versus another, our gas guzzling brains steer us toward the status quo. So we find information that confirms what we already believe. We have something called availability bias, meaning that you tend to pay attention to something that's more in front of you, whether it be on the internet or the newspaper or TV or the people that you hang out with versus going out and finding new sources of information. We have another bias called recency bias, which is that we just tend to pay attention to things that we heard more recently versus something that you heard a long while ago. So all of these sort of efficiency-driven biases lead us to value some forms of information better than others. And so that can land with investors in very particular ways, because if something bad's going on in the market, well, first of all, there's a, a deeper issue going on in terms of, well, when we sense danger, and red lines on a screen can feel just as physically dangerous as kind of a, a lion in the wild that's roaring at you. And so when you feel that fear, your time horizon sort of collapses, you, you narrow your focus, and the information that you tend to find is exactly of the kind that I just described. It maps to what you already believe, it's what's right in front of you, and it's what you just heard. And this is can be a real problem when it comes to making sort of more reasonable long-term economic or financial decisions. Well, it's, it's interesting on that point, because I mean, I know I've read in multiple places that the brain when under stress actually performs worse, right? Like our, our IQs actually get, for lack of a better term, dumber when, when we are under prolonged stress and our ability to process information just diminishes, right? So it's a bit of a regression back to the, <laughs> the more primal mind of, you know, we're, we're entrenching ourselves back in survival mode and, and getting rid of the other things that don't matter in a lot of ways, I would say. So it's, I mean, disagree or agree or disagree with me on that point, but it's well, just one of those things where I don't, I, I might disagree, uh, which makes it more fun. I don't know if I disagree, Absolutely. but I, I just want to make things a little more complicated because they need to be, which is that one thing that, and frankly, behavioral finance has not done a good job at this. It's one of the severe limitations of behavioral finance, which comes out of cognitive psychology, meaning that it's just about, hey, you've got a bunch of information and how do you use that information to make decisions that could produce better outcomes? What that doesn't include at all is our emotions. And I think even among those who claim to be like really into behavioral finance, and a lot of people say that now, it's kind of like the cool kids thing to like be into. The fact is that 
most, even the people who are into something called behavioral finance don't really appreciate how core emotions are to who we are. They are not sort of something that come after the fact, like the, when, you know, Descartes says, I think therefore I am modern neuroscience has actually proven that to be just flat out wrong. It's Mm. I feel therefore I am. Mm. And so when we talk about getting the emotion out of our financial decision-making, especially our investment decision-making, that is wrongheaded. That produces stress in an advisor-client relationship that can produce bad decisions. I think what we need to appreciate is that appreciating what those emotions are, having the right vocabulary for the emotions, whether it's sad, happy, fear, greed, envy, anger, disgust, joy, there's there's a lot of different words that we can use for our for our suite of emotions. Appreciating that emotions are central, they are definitive to the human experience, and they're not something that we try to like push off to the side so that we can get to our rational self, even behavioral finance for the most part. And it's a bit of a wonky thing, you know, related to the evolution of the discipline, but traditional behavioral finance does not take that into account. Hmm. It's it's interesting. You talk about it being the cool kids thing these days. And it's funny because one of the things that always that always kind of really hits me or always I have to remind myself about with this is that even if we learn about it, even if we try to incorporate this in our practice, and we'll talk about the benefits later as a financial working with the financial advisors who's taken incorporation of these beliefs into his into his practice. Now, a lot of there's a lot of difficulty in incorporating anyone incorporating into their everyday lives, a realization of this. I mean, even even Daniel Kahneman basically says that after decades of study of these things, he's no better in recognizing his subject, his, his, um, is falling for these biases any more than the average person is. Well, but it's, it's, I'm sort of tired of that line. It's a little too clever. Um, and like the guys, the guy's a genius and good for Danny Kahneman, but enough of that, to be perfectly honest, enough of the biases and heuristics generally, it's time to move on. It's funny. Like so many people are showing up like, Oh, behavioral finance, this is so cool. And it's like, well, yeah, you're falling in love with behavioral finance from 15 years ago. How about we deal with like where the discipline yeah. is now in 2023? So what we're building at Shaping Wealth reflects modern science, not old dusty stuff. So this idea that, and what's baked into Danny's thing, and, and it's like, I feel like an ass, like trying to like argue in the abstract with the guy who invented the field that I built my career in. But this idea that, oh, if I, I, I could still understand all of my quote unquote biases, but not fix them. Well, that's that's sort of the wrong framing in its foundations anyway. Mm-hmm. So when I say we're not allowed to use the word rational versus irrational, we can only use the word normal. Like, let's just focus on that, because this whole idea of, well, if I can learn the biases, then I could do something to get rid of them. Well, I assume you don't have those beeper buttons for profanity. So I'll just say it's BS. That's just not the way we are. And I think when you see this in the financial planning field in in North America, and there are different organizations that teach behavioral finance, I'm not going to name names unless you force me to, but they basically create curricula that force financial advisors to memorize a, a bunch of biases. And uh, the idea is, well, if you can memorize, if you could diagnose your client um, appropriately, then you can find ways to fix them. Like there's so many levels of wrong in the way that the industry teaches behavioral finance to advisors right now. I don't even know where to begin, but I've seen these curricula. They teach lists and lists of biases. They say, hey, rich people have different biases than poor people. I mean, this this stuff is just offensive and it's wrong. 
And what we need to do is stop pathologizing normal human behavior and just work with the people who show up in all of their messiness and complexity. And oh, by the way, we are identical to our clients sitting across the table. We show up messy and complex. And one of the unsung tasks of modern, call it behavioral finance, is advisors getting to know themselves as well or better than they're getting to know their clients and stop acting like some diagnostic expert in, you know, sort of biases and heuristics. You know, it's funny. You went there because I was about to go there because I'm thinking back to and I do, will not do, I, do I sound edgy? No, no, no. But it's interesting because like I was literally having the same thought before you said it, because my behavioral finance, at least my introductions to it were through curriculum of some very credible courses that, you know, again, the sections were here's a checklist of behavioral biases people are used to. Here's an acronym to help you memorize them all. And you know what? They're not without nothing. No knowledge is without value. Right. To me, the implementation of that has always been to recognize what I see that person demonstrating, just understand that's where they're coming from, right? Not necessarily try to say, you know, not to turn around and say you're wrong, but there's ways to kind of take in that information and just have a relatable conversation about what it is they're feeling and, and how to move things along. But I agree with you. Like, I, I don't think that any of the regular, any of the education I've seen to date has formulated any form of construct other than just like, here's an information dump of checklists, right? Like, mm -hmm. great. Now, you know, now a bunch of people take that and say, well, you're wrong because of X. Well, no, they're not wrong because of X. They're feeling because of X. Or, or they're feeling something like that. So, so then talk to me about what it is you're doing at Shaping Wealth and how you're trying to move beyond that general construct of just understanding those checklists. Yeah, so well, a, few, a few things, but I'll, I'll just identify two and I'll use two terms. One is positive psychology and the second is emotional intelligence. So on the first, positive psychology, um, which is a distinct field of psychology, uh, sort of invented, so to speak, by a guy named Marty Seligman at University of Pennsylvania 30 years ago. This is positive psychology is the science of happiness. It's basically saying what, what are the inputs to a life well lived? And so you can go back to Aristotle 2,400 years ago and, and study the Western canon, but you can also track the Eastern canon, especially in terms of Buddhism and think, explore the ancient wisdom on sort of happiness and joy and contentment and things like that. Fast forward to Philadelphia in the 1990s, here's a group of researchers who basically said, yeah, we've received this ancient wisdom, but what do the data say? And fast forward from them to right now, you've had hundreds of millions in research grants spent on all of the things that contribute, understanding the things that contribute to a good life, such as a sense of achievement or the relationships that we build or a number of other factors. So part of what is going on out there, what we're tapping into is recognizing that financial well-being or financial wellness, two, two buzzwords, are not just woo-woo phrases, that they are legit goals and exercises in the context of financial planning. So sometimes we will ask our learners or clients or students, like, to what extent are you responsible for your client's financial well-being? And then we'll also ask a follow-up, to what extent are you responsible for your client's happiness? And that gets people kind of shifting and they're seeing a little bit uncomfortable. But when you begin to impact, unpack the impact that we coaches and advisors have on our clients, you realize that these things are front and center. Because if you drill down, well, why is someone showing up in your office, a person, a couple, a family, a multi-generational relationship? Like, yeah, yes, they, they want more money. They want the things that money can buy. But at the end of the day, people want to lead good lives. They want to be happy. And in the financial context, they want to figure out where money fits into 
that bigger picture. Well, guess what? There's a whole science of happiness that can be folded into modern financial planning that hasn't been done to date. We're doing that. The second topic is emotional intelligence, and I'll make this shorter, which is to say that if we say that I feel, therefore I am, Descartes was wrong, modern neuroscience is right, well, then we need an emotion, a vocabulary of emotions so that we can be on the same page with those in that we work with. And so there's, we've heard the term EQ, emotional intelligence, emotional competencies. This is, you know, this is an important field of study invented not that long ago. There are four dimensions to emotional intelligence. I'll just rattle them off as self-awareness, self-regulation, empathy, and relationship skills. Each of us is born with a certain level of emotional intelligence, just like we have a certain IQ. Emotional intelligence is just not a trait that we're born with. It's a skill. It's something that we can be better at. So while we think, I think that the modern, the superpower of the modern advisor is empathy. And empathy is not the ability to walk in somebody else's shoes. That's a misnomer. It's understanding the emotions that somebody is feeling in their own place and being able to help articulate that and walk alongside them in what they are going through. Well, that requires a certain amount of insight into what makes us tick. And this isn't woo-woo stuff. This is evidence-based. This is scientific. It's practice management. And so in some sense, what we are doing globally, because we have clients on every continent now, is not except Antarctica. We are, (laughs) yeah, if if you know anybody in base camp that happens to be a planner, let me know. I'd be a feather in my cap. We are basically training financial advisors in emotional intelligence. Excellent. I got a confession. A lot of what you said really hit home for me there in that I've long railed against the advisors who believe that our only thing, the only thing we're here to do is something technical. Like I'm here to invest your money. I'm here to put you an insurance policy. I'm here to produce a plan and then move on. I I don't, I've become a core part of of a lot of people's lives. And I do not understand any other relationship beyond that, given how rewarding that can be. And yeah, you know, I will say I'm not someone who would be disturbed by you asking to what degree I'm responsible for a client's happiness. I don't know the answer to that question, but it's I'm not not responsible for that. And yeah, you know, uh, so, I mean, I'll jump I'll jump in here. It's at some point you're going to take our uh, our flagship coaching program, and I'm going to push you pretty hard on that one because I know that you've already done a lot of work on it. So you've kind of earned your spot in the the tough spot of the CrossFit gym. I think I'm a huge advocate for the modern advisor. I think she makes a material difference in the quality of other people's lives. And we should take seriously that task. And this goes beyond just being a fiduciary. It is even heavier than that. Mm -hmm. And in helping people along life's journey, I feel that the modern advisor wears two hats or plays two roles, mechanic and guide. And so as a mechanic, as a technical expert in planning, in investments, taxes, estates, insurance, all the things, It's absolutely important. It's non-negotiable. You have to have some kind of expertise. So you're building the engine, you're making the engine run well on somebody's financial plan. But then there's a second role, which is not mechanical or technical. It's being a guide. It's asking, okay, we've built this beautiful car or vehicle. Is it actually going in the right direction at the right pace? And this isn't just common sense or high ethics. The things that I've made reference to, behavioral finance, positive psychology, emotional intelligence, and there's other disciplines that we don't need to complicate this with. But if you take just those, there's actually an evidence-based science to being a better guide for other people's lives. And so what we're doing is saying, hey, you guys got 
training out the wazoo on all the technical pieces. You kind of don't have a lot of training on the guidance part, but in some sense, it's what people want because they're showing up at your office asking just two questions. And I've been coaching advisors since 2014, and this is what I hear. They're asking two questions. Am I going to be okay? And how much is enough? And guess what? That maps perfectly to the evolutionary two-step, survive and thrive. The first question, am I going to be okay? It's just so fundamental. My loved ones, my partners, my, you know, my family members, am I going to be okay? Wow. And we give our clients as guides permission to ask that question in whatever way that they want to. And we're right alongside them with our heightened emotional intelligence via empathy. And we make a difference in their lives. The second question, how much is enough? Okay, you've survived. Today's been a good day. You've made it. Now I want to reach for the stars. But how much is enough? Because we know paradox of choice on the scientific side, but just common sense. Sometimes you just get overwhelmed with too much. Answering that question of how much is enough, don't forget, you know, Jason, we, and you know this as well as anyway, we live at this moment in March of 2023 at the most prosperous time moment in human history. We have more stuff, more money, more resources than any point before. And we are recording globally record levels of anxiety and depression and loneliness. What the hell's going on? So when we say how much is enough, we're also tapping into something deep, but we've also established, hey, we've made it. We're not hungry. We are warm. We are blessed. But now, how do I calibrate? How do I tighten the story of my life so that I feel like I'm going to wrap it all up with as few regrets as possible and with as much pride as possible? So we are not only mechanics, we are guides. Yep. Uh, you know, unfortunately, the constant joke that I'm an, untra I'm an untrained therapist, unfortunately. And the reality is, is that this industry, all the heavy lifting, number crunching, administrative work that we're doing is readily becoming automated and simplified and all kinds of stuff. So the reality is, is that, you know, I get this debate with people where they say, you know, advisors are going to serve more clients because of all this technology. And my response is that's exactly the wrong response. That's an engineering. You're training this like an engineering problem. It's yeah. not an engineering problem. One of the things that I despised about having worked at a large scale broker dealer when I was younger was that. I felt like there was no, everybody had lost sight of the fact that these weren't numbers on a screen. These were people's lives. And, and that burden just, I didn't feel was felt there. And I do not believe that you can scale that kind of emotional connection and need to basically deeply care about an individual at scale. I think any advisor who's got a very deep relationship with their client will tell you that past 50 to 60, it starts to become a struggle. Past 100, it becomes impossible. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, just like there's studies that show that if we look at one picture of a starving child, we feel empathy. We look at a picture, we find out there's a million starving children. Suddenly it's just an overwhelming thing and we can't connect with, with, the, with the crowd. Right. So, yeah, echo everything you just said, because it is it is something that is the direction, I hope, of the future of this industry. And fortunately, many people are take are, are not waiting for that to become the case. Many of us are, are trying to actually be that now if we can. And but it's, it's a it's still an early, early thing in this industry. Yeah. There's this generational shift. I think it's been, so the financial planning really wasn't a thing until the late 60s through the 1970s and on a broader institutional uptake, giving your clients a financial plan, let alone engaging in planning. is sort mm -hmm. of like, what, 15 to 20 years old on a stretch? 
depends on what um, country we're talking yeah, about. Yeah, it depends so what country, you know. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, in the U.S. No, and I appreciate that because and it's 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 actually fascinating to me because we do have clients in a bunch of different countries. So, but I, I will say also globally, there's more that's similar than different in terms of leading edge planning firms thinking about these topics because they appreciate, to your point, Jason, that a lot of the engineering problems have. I don't know if they've been commoditized, but um, if someone is coming to you because they think that you can pick investments better than the next guy, I think you have a competitive problem. If they think that you are better at structuring the estate just perfectly, it's hard to distinguish yourself on, on those sorts of things, which isn't to say that you can't build a great portfolio. And it's not to say that you can't build a totally appropriate and effective estate plan. It's just that a lot of other people can too. I think the competitive advantage does come in the connection that you make to these folks. And you know the data, what happens to the wife after the husband passes, they move Fires on. Fires the advisor, overwhelmingly. What, what happens to the kids after the parents pass? Fires the advisor, overwhelmingly. Okay, well, here we go. So let's be as selfish as possible about our enterprise value and make the investment in the guidance piece to this. I like it because it's the right thing to do. And I only got one ticket for this ride. And, and I find this stuff fascinating and important. But even if you don't, and you're just sort of flat out trying to maximize revenues, you can do good by doing good. Well, this is the thing is that I'm not a believer in nothing but win-lose scenarios. I believe that, especially in this industry, it is rife with the opportunity for win-win. And it's just a lot of it is your perspective. So yeah, I completely agree with you. So we're, we're running along on time. So I'm going to, uh, let's wrap it up here. But Brian, this has been okay. incredibly valuable. I think uh, people have gotten a general understanding for financial planning beyond just the numbers and the emotional side of it and how the human brain works. And, uh, and I, I thank you for your time. Where can people find out more about what it is you do? Yeah, so our website is shapingwealth.com and that gives some window into the experiences that we provide for financial advisors. Well, I'll summarize it by saying that we've got, some coaching programs that have a start date and an end date. And then we have an advisor engagement dashboard that is subscription-based that provides ongoing resources to advisors, what I call snackable and shareable content, bite-sized pieces of behavioral insight and coaching and tools and games and resources that you can use for three purposes. One, your own personal growth. Two, you're building your team. And three, engaging your clients. So shapingwealth.com is the spot for that. And uh, as you know, Jason, because we both have the sickness, I'm on Twitter more than I should be. And my handle is just my name, which is at Brian Portnoy. Yes. Well, I thank you for your contribution there and in your platform. And as a subscriber, I highly endorse this product or service. Um, that's just a joke <laughs> I make every time you mention it, but I sincerely do. Thank you so much for your time, good sir. Absolutely. So that was Brian Portnoy from Shaping Well. I hope you enjoyed that. And I hope that if you are out there dealing with a financial planner, that you are dealing with someone who's more than a technician, someone who truly cares about your long-term well-being. As always, if you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever it is at your podcast. Until next time, take care. This podcast was brought to you by Woodgate Financial, an award-winning financial planning firm catering to high net worth individuals, business owners, and their families. To learn more, go to woodgate.com. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, and Spotify or find more episodes at jasonperera.ca. You can even ask Surrey, Alexa, or Google Home to subscribe for you. 